Hello and welcome to the Powers That Be, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. Welcome. First, I'll be talking to Julia Yaffe about the crisis in Ukraine and why severe sanctions from the U.S. and its allies don't seem likely to change Vladimir Putin's mind. After that, we'll be joined by Matt Bellany to discuss the weirdness surrounding Quentin Tarantino's NFTs and why everyone in Hollywood is mad at the Oscars. And finally, our media savant Dylan Byers will be here to talk about the cable news networks that are courting White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Will she leave the briefing room? These are the sort of great conversations you can only have with expert insider reporters who really know what's going on. I hope that you enjoy the powers that be. Welcome, everybody, to the powers that be here in the A Block. Of course, we are going to talk about the crisis in Ukraine and joined by one of the world's foremost experts on all things Russia, Julia Yaffe, who has been immersed in this crisis for weeks now and is barely sleeping because she is so in demand uh, over the last week. We are recording this on the afternoon East Coast time on Wednesday, February 23rd. So caveat, things can change. As of this recording, the Biden administration and NATO have basically said Russia is full steam ahead with a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. This has been a bit of a shift, I believe, Julia, from last week when, you know, not just you, but plenty of people thought this might have been de-escalating. But since then, Putin has pushed more troops into Donetsk and Luhansk. He is putting supplies and blood supplies on the border. And people in Ukraine are officially scared. Can you just give us a sense of I don't want you to predict the future here, but oh, good. are all of the signals that we're hearing from the Biden administration uh, and NATO accurate that Putin is about to launch a full scale invasion of Ukraine? Or is this some nine dimensional diplomatic chess that they're playing to try to find an off ramp? Uh, I'm not sure, but I, I do think they're being honest about what they believe Putin's intentions to be. Um, And I believe they're being honest about what they're seeing and how alarming it is. I think what's unprecedented is the, you know, the fact that they're sharing it with the media and with the American people and the British and French and German people in real time. I think at this point from my conversations with people in European embassies here in Washington and in the Biden administration, I think the off-ramp was like, we left it far in the distance. And there's a sense of resignation almost that we've tried everything. We know sanctions. I mean, I think that that is the other kind of thing. The other new element here is that before this crisis, I think there was still this delusion in in Washington that sanctions have an effect on Putin's thinking and um, his decision-making. But I think now people are coming around to the fact that they do not, that the sanctions have been factored into Putin's thinking and that he believes they are, the consequences of the sanctions are worth it to achieve his broader geopolitical aims and that it's now just, you know, overhead rather than deterrent. And so I think that adds even more of a sense of resignation 
to people in the White House and the State Department that we can't really stop this guy. We're not sending soldiers in. We know the sanctions don't really do anything except, you know, punish him and his people after the fact. And it just feels really grim in in Washington foreign policy circles and in the Biden administration now. It's just like they're waiting for the war to break out. They wish they had been wrong, but they also, you know, it's like they're watching an avalanche. That's something that I'm picking up on is that the U.S., their European allies are promising to help shore up the Ukrainian military. Every time you see some official from Ukraine or, or they interview soldiers from Ukraine, they say, we're tough, we can do this. But there does seem to be an air of pessimism and resignation that even if we do send military supplies and resources to the Ukraine military, that it will be almost impossible to stop the Russian army from rolling all the way to Kiev. Are you picking up on that as well? Yeah, and I'm picking up on, well, it's not hard to do because Zelensky says it so loudly. I think there's a sense of resentment of the West. I think it was last week that Zelensky said, you know, we're sick of this. You've had your door open ostensibly to us, to NATO, since 2008. It's been 14 years. And, you know, with one side of your mouth, you say, yes, yes, the door is open and we can't allow Russia to veto, you know, our membership policy. But at the same time, he's like the same people who are saying that are also saying that Ukraine won't join and they're like dragging their feet on this. And it was very clear that he was throwing shade at the Biden administration and the and the French and the Germans who don't really want Ukraine and NATO. But I think there's definitely a sense of like, you teased us with this and you're not coming to our defense and we're going to have to fight alone. And um, all your talk of European security and standing up to Russia is ultimately bullshit because you're not you're not going to back us up on this. You're just going to stand and watch while we get overrun. And um, I I sympathize with that. Yeah, no, I was thinking about this morning. I was writing a script about this for my my Snapchat show, and I caught myself thinking Ukraine has been wanting to be in NATO for a very long time, and and NATO has said. Sure, come on in, but just wait on the stoop for a minute for a very long time. And and in some ways, especially given the way that Putin views Russia in the world and his place in history and, and the long version of history that that he sees Russia partaking in, this feels like like the natural conclusion of where this was gonna go. You know, not that we could have predicted the future, but it's like you just can't keep this country that is literally on the doorstep of Russia just dangling for over a decade and just hope that everything will be fine. Is this just a outgrowth of who Putin naturally is in wanting to flex his muscles? And, you know, you tweeted this week, I think Michael McFall, the former ambassador of Russia, said on a on a TV hit with you that Putin kind of likes war. Or is this like a new sort of untamed Putin who is who is losing his marbles and just kind of unhinged, you know, or is it or is it something else? Yeah, I think it's the same Putin that we've had. It's just that he is even more concentrated and distilled, if that makes sense. Like he it's the same Putin we got in 2000. And, um, you know, observers far smarter than I 
have pointed out that this isn't the first war he has started with a false flag. You know, in fact, the very foundation of his presidency was a war in Chechnya that he provoked and started with a false flag operation by killing hundreds of Russian citizens. People suspect that's what happened, but it wouldn't, you know, this wouldn't be the first time. I think that now it's just that he feels like he has far less to lose and everything to gain. He has cleaned house at home and there's no opposition either outside or inside his government. There's literally nobody who will tell him that this is a terrible idea and this is going to be bloody. I think he knows that it's going to be bloody and I think he doesn't care. It's just like Putin with fewer limitations put put on him, but it's the same, same kind of thinking, same kind of conspiracy theory, conspirological thinking that Ukraine is actually is not a real country, that its government is just a puppet of the US, and that there's this anti-Russian cabal in the West that they want to topple him and basically start regime change in Russia. And I think this is just kind of the, also the logical conclusion of Putin. One of the things I've been thinking of this week is what would have happened if in 2008, after Georgia was invaded and had 20% of its territory lopped off, what if Georgia said, fine, we're letting those regions go. We're not contesting them because you can't join NATO with contested territory on your territory, which is part of the reason Putin did that, both in Ukraine and in Georgia to kind of invalidate them, their membership by NATO's own rules. If they just said, let, let those territories go, and NATO just took Georgia and Ukraine right in, what would have happened? I don't think he would have dared to invade a NATO country, especially not back then. What would he have done if NATO had allowed Ukraine in a year ago, or like right now? You know? Like, I don't think he's going to invade the Baltics, for example, like everybody's scared of him invading the Baltics, but I don't think he will, because that is, I don't think he wants a war with, with the US and with the West, but it's easy to go overrun your small neighbor like that. That's easy. It's called in Russian, it's called which is a small victorious war in the sense that it is um, all upside politically. We've now talked about this on this podcast for I think four weeks in a row, and <laughs> you have you have really like I think distilled very well the confusing, whimsical sentiments of the global community and what people in DC are talking about, and you know place some betting odds on will he or won't he invade. And you know, just a week ago, it seemed like this wasn't going to happen. What changed? over the course of a week from there might be an off-ramp to, oh, biggest military action in Europe since World War II. <laughs> I think Friday is what is what changed it because it seemed like the first phase of the of this plan were was kicked into gear and was starting to be implemented. You had the videos from the leaders of the People's Republics telling people to evacuate. You started getting Russian state media reporting that they were being shelled by Ukrainians, which was not true, that the Ukrainian military was blowing up cars of separatist leaders, which was not true. You just saw it suddenly crank into gear. It was like a machine was turned on. 
And then there was like a bit of a lull over the weekend. I feel like it's a series of escalating plateaus, right? Like Friday was terrifying. And then we kind of stayed at that plateau of just like false flag attacks and propaganda videos on Russian state TV and these evacuations from the People's Republic. And then Monday, it jumped again to like a much higher level with Putin's Security Council meeting that some people said looked like a deleted scene from Death of Stalin. To me, it was like getting a peek into, you know, what a Politburo meeting must have looked like in like 1939, when the original Politburo and their replacements and their replacements had been arrested and shot in the basements of Lubyanka. And then suddenly, the replacements know that they have to tread very carefully and say exactly what the dictator wants to be said. And then you had his crazy speech right after that, which was just deranged. And he was like openly threatening Ukraine and saying it wasn't a real country. And he was angry. It was crazy. And then him recognizing these republics and recognizing them in borders that are far bigger than the ones they currently exist in. And now it feels like we're at that plateau today. And then it feels like Maybe tomorrow, maybe the next couple of days, it's going to jump again and get worse. It's a horrible, I mean, it's not about my feelings, but it's a horrible feeling. Yeah. Well, let me, I want to let you go in a sec because you are, as I mentioned, uh, in demand as an observer of all of this. Puck first, puck first. <laughs> puck first, I know. But I, I was saying before you got on, like as a reporter, and this, the, the, I felt this at CNN, it's like the more you're in demand to do TV and you keep going on TV, you actually like don't get <laughs> to do actual reporting, yeah. reading, which makes you wonder about the content of TV. <laughs> totally. I mean, there's, there's, there are plenty of people on TV and cable news who are just good at talking and, and mm -hmm. that's and filling space between ads. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> you and I are not those people obviously, but as I let you go, what is one conversation that you've had maybe with someone in, in Ukraine or, maybe even someone in Russia that you just can't stop thinking about over the last couple of weeks. What's something that's really jumped out at you that spooked you, that's made you worried about this situation because um, you are sounding pretty, pretty gloomy right now. One was a conversation. I mean, most of my connections are to Russia. Like that's where most of my friends are. That's where I spent most of my time, even though I'm obviously on Ukraine side on this one, but it's not really a conversation, but seeing six people come out against this invasion on Pushkin Square in Moscow and immediately get arrested, it was crushing to see that because in 2014, thousands of people marched in Moscow against the annexation of Crimea. People took a really hard anti-Kremlin stance on it, at, you know, even at risk to themselves. They just they saw it was wrong and they didn't want to keep quiet. But now after the last year, when so many people have been jailed and forced into exile and just spooked into not speaking out, only six people came out. And it made me think about 1968 when the Soviets intervened militarily in, in Czechoslovakia and crushed the Prague Spring, killing an unbelievable amount of people. I think it was six or eight people came out on Red Square and they unfurled a banner that said, for your freedom and ours, and were immediately arrested, of course. And, you know, it, it was like, 
we're back there again. And then at the same time, you know, on my uh, Instagram, I see a lot of Russian friends and Russian celebrities and journalists and activists doing this kind of flash mob. And it's and the hashtag is like, I will not stay silent. And they're all basically saying, you know, not in my name. Like I'm with the people of Ukraine and our, my government is criminal. And, I, and what they're all saying, which is so heartbreaking to me, is they're all expressing a sense of helplessness. Before it was like, we're going to go out into the street. We're going to write things. We're going to do things. We're going to like, we're going to throw ourselves on the, you know, on the barricades. And now it's just like, they're all saying is all I can do is to just register my discontent for posterity. I know it won't change anything, but I want my kids to know, you know, 30 years down the line that I was against this. I want somebody to find this, like some historian to find this and know that not everybody was in Russia agreed with this. It's this kind of heartbreaking scream into the abyss that's swallowing them up. And it makes me really sad for what was lost in Russia too. this kind of vibrant civil society that existed despite the odds and the dangers to it. Now it's just a flash mob on Instagram. The whole saga over the last few days has had a, a, a whiff of helplessness about it. The voices you're talking about resigned to social media. And then, you know, <laughs> the world's great Western powers also underneath the bravado and the stern language and the finger wagging a complacency that, you know, we can't do much to stop this. Again, if you're listening to Biden, if you're listening to leaders from Germany and France and elsewhere, they're saying they'll do everything they can to support it. But this is like, you know, in, in the final four, like Loyola Chicago going up against Duke. It's like, OK, like <laughs> there's only so much. Is, you that, can do. is that basketball? <laughs> that is sport ball. That's a sport ball reference. Yes. So um, can I, can I just, um, <laughs> Can I? So my references are uh, history dork references, and what I worry about happening here, which I think might be the worst case scenario, is not Ukraine getting overrun, but a kind of Spanish Civil War scenario where the Soviet Union and the West supported the Republican forces in Spain just enough for them to keep fighting, but not enough to win, and it dragged the war out for three years made it extremely bloody with horrible political consequences down the line, but also just like a deeply traumatic and horrible, horrible war. And then we saw that play out again in Syria where, you know, the free Syrian army got just enough support to not lose, but not enough to win. And what I worry about happening here is that this, it becomes bloody and long. Right. No, I'll have to go back and read homage to Catalonia to refresh my... <laughs> memory on that um but i remember it also being <laughs> orwell's take was similar to yours there um yeah okay julia i will let you go so you can um continue monitoring this and we will talk next week thanks so much peter coming up i talked to matt bellany about quentin tarantino nfts and why this year's oscars just got even more controversial Thanks again for listening to The Powers That Be and for supporting Puck, our new company focused on the inside conversation, the plot that only the insiders know. The real story at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Puck's content is fantastic. Our scoops and analysis will help you understand the most important stuff happening in our culture today. 
And when you subscribe to Puck, you're supporting our great team, empowering us to do the work that really matters to grow our business and pave a path for a new media model. So check us out at puck.news. Joining me now on the powers that be is Matt Bellany, who has a habit of showing up to our little uh, Zoom squadcast recordings with a Dodgers hat on. I feel like you wear a Dodgers hat every week. I try. It's Right now, it's my good mojo hat to try to end the lockout, the MLB lockout. If they don't find a deal this week, then they're going to have to delay the season, which I think will be a disaster for both sides. So I'm hoping that some kind of resolution will happen this week. Uh, not optimistic, but I do hope I do hope it'll happen. That would be brutal, especially in L.A. There's like a taste of spring right now. It's been so nice and warm out. Baseball will be a welcome event. Matt, I want to talk to you about a funny, weird, of-the-moment story that you wrote this week about Quentin Tarantino, Pulp Fiction, NFTs, and Hollywood's current demand, desire to make a lot of monies off of Web3 and NFTs. Uh, You did have an all-time lead uh, for this article that you wrote about Tarantino's Pulp Fiction NFTs and a sort of network that's trying to sell them. And you write that, quote, the whole endeavor seems to be as dead as Vincent Vega in the black suit, which is a great lead. But back up a second. What exactly is happening with this company network that's trying to sell Quentin Tarantino NFTs? And why is Hollywood so interested in it? So I think if you ask the average person in Hollywood whether they care about NFTs, I think the eyes will immediately start rolling the answer is they have to care because this is a potential gold mine. I mean, think of all of the behind the scenes and scripts and deleted scenes and cutting room floor stuff that could potentially be mined as essentially digital collectibles. You could sell this stuff as NFTs. And for people who don't understand, NFTs are non-fungible tokens, which are essentially blockchain-backed collectibles that people can own, whether it's artwork or script pages or anything associated with a movie that would feel unique, that someone could own and have it verified via digital verification process. That's all we're talking about here. It's a very modern version of collectibles. And what Tarantino said is he was going to use the script pages from Pulp Fiction, including some of his very famous dialogue. The first one that sold was the Royale with cheese scene with John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson, which if you are a Tarantino fan, you will obviously know that scene very well. Tarantino actually got sued by Miramax, the studio that released the movie, claiming they claim that they own all the broad rights around the movie and that Tarantino did not have the right to offer these NFTs. Tarantino said that his deal gave him the right to, quote, publish his screenplay in any manner that he liked. And this is simply a digital way to publish a screenplay. Very good argument, very interesting argument. And it sort of went up in smoke the entire case because Tarantino entered into an agreement to sell these NFTs. They sold the first one for a reported $1.1 million. And then they abandoned the whole thing. There's some mystery behind why the outfit that sold the NFTs abruptly just gave up and said, we're not doing this anymore. We're putting it on indefinite hold. Some people think that there is a cloud of litigation around this and that people who might be interested in buying these NFTs would not do so if they thought they might get sued by Miramax. 
maybe good argument. There's another argument that said there maybe just, there just wasn't that much interest, and that the 1.1 million dollar price that they supposedly got for the first one may have just been this company either itself or an affiliated company pumping up the price and buying it themselves or through an affiliated entity just to say, hey, there's a market for this, everyone else come on in, and then nobody did. There may have been tech problems, they also had a copyright issue with some of the marketing materials, but the bottom line is this sale did not happen after that first one, and people are asking why. The whole thing looks like a big dumpster fire. So I, I have a I have two dumb NFT questions. One, when you talk about the Royale with cheese NFT, is that like a version of the script with that piece of dialogue? Like, what is the actual collectible when it's the script? You talk about the Royale with cheese. Okay, it's the script. And Tarantino had said that he was going to provide additional material, whether it's him talking about the script, whether it's him, you know, providing additional background on it that was going to make it even more unique than simply having a page of the script. Yes. But what he was saying is that you would own this, you would own the script, the original script, and this would be unique to you. Now, what I've heard is that because there's this movement in the NFT world where some people believe that NFTs should be totally unique and that the price should reflect you owning something that is no one else in the world could have. And that a million dollars for a page of the Tarantino original script is worth it. Some believe that NFTs should be more like when an artist does a limited edition print of his or her work and that you should do 10, 15,000 of them. And it should be more like collectibles where the price point would be lower and people could own it just like you might own an autograph of a poster or something like that. They say that the NFT sale may go forward here ultimately using a different model where it's not just going to be one person can buy it for a million dollars and it's going to be more like the collectibles. That could also be total bullshit and this is just falling apart. The outfit that did the sale is an Israeli company that is not one of the powerhouses in the NFT world. And it's telling to me that those companies passed on what you would think would be a marquee type NFT sale. Got a lot of attention. There was a big New York Times story. Tarantino doing this was a big deal. And the fact that neither of the big companies are involved in this suggests to me that they were either scared away by the litigation or that there was some other problem that didn't lend itself to them getting involved and that this company in Israel, which is not a fly-by-night company, but it's not one of the players, just kind of fucked it up. Okay, so here's my second dumb NFT question on this. If Tarantino, I know these things probably don't exist, but if he went to a convention in Vegas for Pulp Fiction fans and literally said, like, here's the original script for Pulp Fiction, or here is a famous piece of the script, could he sell that paper copy at a convention and not have Miramax get cranky about it? Is it like, in other words, is this just a like, NFT thing that Miramax is cranky about, or do they totally own his script? In most situation, movie scripts are works for hire for the studio. And when you write it, they own it. What's unique in the Tarantino situation is that when that script was written and sold to Miramax, there was a movement in the 90s for some of these filmmakers to sell their scripts as books. 
you know, if you were a big filmmaker, you could have a market for this. So his team, his lawyer and his agent specifically held back his right to publish the script. Miramax did not own that right. And they're arguing that this is simply a modern version of this. Yes, Tarantino could get up at a convention and sell his script. But what's unique about NFTs is this digital authenticity issue. Because of the blockchain, you can say this is the only copy of this and we are putting it in the blockchain. This is going to be valuable because no one else can have this. I think you just brought up something that helps me understand NFTs a lot more, which is if there's some kind of value add attached to one of these things, a piece of commentary, some kind of autograph, something that just like no one has ever seen or heard before. That to me like explains NFTs a lot more and adds obvious value to it rather than here is something that already exists in the digital world, but like some guy on the blockchain owns it, you know? Yeah. I mean, think about in the movie context, if you are, let's say Adam McKay, who is the writer director of many films, including Don't Look Up, which is up for Oscars this year. He directed Anchorman, um, one of the great Will Ferrell movies. And there is a famous story about Anchorman having an original ending that was very different from the one that ultimately ended up in theaters because they did test screenings and the fans didn't like it. Now, think about Adam McKay or the studio behind that. Somebody who is a super fan of Anchorman or Will Ferrell would probably love to be the only person in the world to own the original ending of Anchorman. And now, via NFTs, he could probably do that. And there's questions of ownership, whether, you know, the studio probably owns all that material and they'd have to be involved. But there's value in a lot of this stuff that Hollywood has put out for 100 years that either is not public or is public, but you could own it in a way that would be verifiable and unique to you. So that's what we're talking about. That's why the stakes are so high here, because there's a lot of potential revenue to be made. And every studio has a division or an executive who is looking at these materials and trying to figure out how this becomes a revenue stream for these companies. Didn't Reese Witherspoon just announce an NFT venture? Yeah, Reese, Reese is doing it. You know, Snoop Dogg is doing it. I mean, everybody is looking at this and what they have that will be unique. And, you know, these celebrities are essentially big brands. People know who they are and they have fandom associated with them. And people might be interested in owning some kind of collectible associated with these people. The collectible business has been gigantic for decades now. This is really just the next iteration of this in the digital realm. Uh, speaking of something that is decidedly not futuristic, let's talk about the Oscars. Did you know that you are not allowed to sell your Oscar when you win it? Oh, is that right? The Academy, since since the, I believe it's the 1950s, maybe even earlier, they have a right of first refusal. If you ever try to sell your Oscar, you have to sell it to the Academy for a dollar first. <laughs> so they have taken the market for Oscars, you know, and 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 essentially made Oscars super valuable if you can find one to buy because you cannot buy one after whatever date it was. I believe it's the 1950s. Oh, so people like I know a guy who bought an Oscar and it was a an Oscar from the 20s that an estate sale had sold, and there are just not many Oscars to buy because of the Academy's policy. That is fascinating. I did not know that. So you'll, you you might have to settle for buying a Golden Globe. I have an Emmy. I'm sure if anyone out there wants to buy my Emmy. Um, what was your Emmy for? 2012 election coverage at CNN. Oh, good for um, you. 
Yeah, yeah. It's cool. It's a cool little cool little statue to have around the house. I don't like show it off. There's a lot of Emmys out there. The Emmys have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of categories. But, you know, the Oscars, they only have 23 categories. And it's a much more coveted statue. No, no, I don't want to disrespect your Emmy. No, no, no. I, I, I am personally proud of it. And it's cool to have around the house. But no one would want to buy my Peter Hamby, Mitt Romney coverage Emmy from 2012. So speaking of Oscar categories, they announced this week, Matt, that they are dropping eight categories from the award show. What, what are the actual categories? Yeah, this is a big deal because the Academy this week announced that they are going to be giving out eight of the Oscars of this year's ceremony before the telecast. And they will be the speeches will be edited into the live broadcast, but they won't be presented live on the show, which is a big change and has been very controversial within Hollywood. The categories are the short subjects, so documentary, short film, and short animated film, plus film editing, makeup and hairstyling, original score, production design, and sound. Those categories will be given out before the show and edited in. I think it's a great idea. I've been pushing for this for years. I think that the Oscar telecast is long, bloated. The average viewer does not care about some of these minor, in their minds, awards. And they're not being kicked off the show. They're just being presented before and then given you know, in a montage or in an edited segment that will cut down on time. And they're essentially doing what the Grammys have done for years, which is hopefully focusing on making the telecast a better produced and more interesting show for viewers at the expense of some of these long speeches from people that you've never heard of. Hasn't there always been a like clip sequence where they're like Oscars awarded at an earlier ceremony or is that just Grammys? Uh, the Grammys does that extensively. The Oscars has not done that for the major, you know, for the big awards. Sometimes they will refer to honorary Oscars that have been given at another ceremony called the Governor's Awards. That used to also be on the, on the main telecast, and that was booted a couple years ago for its own show. The Oscars just has a huge problem. Interest in the show is tanking. And, you know, last year's show only generated a little more than 9 million viewers. That cannot keep happening if the Academy wants to keep it's lucrative television deal with ABC. So they're making changes. And it's only one part of what I think needs to happen. They needed to boot some of these categories. And now they need to replace that time with compelling exclusive content that you can only see on the Oscars. I've said for years they should be putting exclusive trailers on the show. They should have performances from songs that you can't see anywhere else. They should have reunions of big movie casts. People love that stuff. Star, star, star. Everything that they have in Hollywood should be thrown at the viewer, thrown at the film fan to get them more interested in this show. It should not be an hour of people you've never heard of getting up there and thanking their high school teacher and their mother. And we've, we've talked about this on, on The Powers of the View before, too. I mean, a lot of the award nominees are films and actors and directors of films that the vast majority of Americans haven't even seen or heard of, which is just becoming increasingly the case. And if you, you know, use your idea here and, and you use celebrities and, and big stars as kind of a bait and switch that that feels like it would help bring awareness to a lot of these films that, you know, before the, the ceremony were just unheard of. Yeah. I mean, the Oscars is a gigantic promotional platform for these movies, but it's not a promotional platform if nobody tunes in. If nobody tunes in, then it's just Hollywood talk to themselves. And increasingly, that's what this show has become. It's almost like the Tonys, which has very low ratings. And the knock on moving these categories is that these categories like production design and sound and 
original score, they tend to go to more mainstream movies because those types of movies are the ones that invest in things like production design and score and visual effects, things like that. But they're still going to be honored on the show. It's just going to be in a more time-efficient fashion and something where it's going to respect, in my view, the viewer more and say, you know what? You don't have to sit through three shorts categories. We're just going to tell you who won. And if you're interested in those movies, go for it. But you don't need to see the shorts categories. Nobody sees those movies. I've been in the audience for the Oscars where even people who are there are going to the lobby for a drink, are chatting amongst themselves. It's just not that interesting. As someone who used to be the editor of The Hollywood Reporter, obviously you're extremely well-sourced and well-connected here in Los Angeles. Have you ever, how many of how many of the animated short films have you watched over your career? <laughs> One year I saw some of them at Sundance or some of, I saw a short that ended up getting nominated, but never, I never watched the shorts. It's the category in your office pool that you have to Google to find out what the professional prognosticators think before you even vote. And, you know, I know a lot of those prognosticators that don't even see all the shorts. You know, they say that whatever the one that's about the Holocaust is going to win or the, whatever short film that comes from Pixar is going to win because those are what a lot of the voters vote on because they don't see the films either. So the shorts are, are, are a no-brainer here. It's where you get into some of these very important categories for movie making, like film editing. Can't make a movie without film editing. And you know, it used to be that whoever won the film editing Oscar, that was kind of a harbinger. It was a predictor of what would end up winning Best Picture. That's become less true in recent years, but it's still an important category. And you know, the, the people in those individual branches of the Academy are very upset about this. You know, I talked to an editor who was like, this sucks. It's like a slap in the face saying that what we do doesn't matter. And I totally disagree. I, I mean, I understand that sentiment, but this is not about disrespecting the crafts. It's about creating a compelling television product that will serve as a marketing vehicle for all movies. That's what the Academy is doing here. It's a rare moment where they're actually thinking about their audience and not their members and they're you know whining on Twitter. And I think it's a great move. Yeah, it's not like you're getting a smaller Oscar. You're just not, you don't have the chance to speak before uh, millions of Americans who have no idea who you are. And you do. You will, you, those people will be shown. They will be, you know, there will be a clip package of them. Their mother will still get to tell all her friends, look, it's my son. That's still going to happen. It's just, they're not going to spend the, the 30 seconds, the minute it takes for you to walk up on stage and hug all of your collaborators for each of these people. Viewers want to see stars. They want to see movie stars and filmmakers. That's what they want to see. And this, the Oscar show should be about delivering that. All right, Matt. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Coming up, Dylan Byers will swing by to talk about the next move for Joe Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, and why all that drama over at CNN is far from over. Hey, it's Peter Hamby. Along with my colleagues, I want to invite you to check out puck.news for the inside story for what's really going on in our culture. It's only $100 a year, which is a steal. Consider buying a subscription today for yourself or your smartest coworker. Check out Puck at www.puck.news. Welcome back, everybody, to the powers that be. I'm joined by media savant Dylan Byers, who... Broke a pretty big story this week that I feel like is the definition of 
what the powers that be is. This is a story about the intersection of media and politics and the power players who run it all. (laughs) Dylan, tell us about this news. Yeah. So, well, cable news has been suffering through all manner of chaos and decline. Ouster of Jeff Zucker, ratings declines following Trump's uh, departure from office, just the general sort of fears and anxieties of that industry. Executives from both CNN and MSNBC have been looking to the same on-air talent as the potential next big thing in television that could reverse their fortunes, and that is none other than Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary. Now, none of this would matter uh, if Jen Psaki, like Jay Carney or Robert Gibbs, wanted to go off and get some lucrative job running corporate communications for the likes of an Amazon or a McDonald's. But that is not what Jen Psaki wants. What Jen Psaki wants is actually to go into television news, not as a contributor, but as a host, as a full-on oh. television news talent. And so earlier this month, Amy Antelis and Rebecca Cutler uh, of CNN flew down to Washington and had lunch with Psaki. And then less than a week later, NBC News chairman Cesar Conde And MSNBC President Rashida Jones flew down to Washington to have lunch with Jen Psaki. And these meetings are basically the sort of opening salvo in their efforts to court her and one day bring her over to their networks in what they believe would be a sort of landmark sea change moment for their programming. And meanwhile, both CBS News and ABC News are also sort of circling the waters um, and expressing interest in her. So that's what I was going to ask you, because just for context for people listening, you probably know that Jen Psaki is the White House press secretary. Resistance moms on Twitter love her her Psaki bombs when she goes after yes. Peter Ducey of Fox News in the, in the briefing room. My relationship with Jen goes back to the Obama 2008 campaign. She had worked for you know, various Democrats before that, but that's when she sort of became more widely known in, in political and media circles. After Obama won, she joined the Obama White House as deputy press secretary. I think she left in like 2010 or 2011 to work for Global Strategy Group, which is a PR firm, but she came back to Obama World in 2012 when he ran again. She was John Kerry's flack at the State Department in Obama's second term. And I believe, and this is what, what I wanted to ask you, she briefly worked as a as a political contributor for CNN. CNN for three years. Yeah, yeah, two or three, for three years. years. Gotcha. So she was more in the pundit role during during the Trump years, but this would be her hosting a show um, yes. ab- about politics, presumably? Yeah. So uh, uh, a former uh, White House communications person going into cable news as a contributor happens all the time. Yeah. The times in which a White House press secretary has gone into the television news business in a sort of major role as a host are actually very few and far between. It was a road that was paved by George Stephanopoulos I think almost three decades ago when he went from the Clinton White House to ABC News. There's, of course, Nicole Wallace, 
uh, at MSNBC, there's Dana Perino at Fox News. But this moment where you sort of get somebody who has the bona fides that come with having served in the West Wing, coupled with someone who actually like is good on television or could potentially be good on television, those moments are actually very rare and few and far between. And I think that's why for both CNN and MSNBC – who are really in desperate need of shifts in strategy and of new marquee talent, that this could be, this would be a really, really big get. And that's why I think they're both going to fight very hard for her. And yes, it would be like, this would be her hosting a show. It, you know, conversations are early and, and my sense is that kind of everything's still on the table. So is she hosting in primetime? Is she taking over for Rachel Maddow? Is she doing a morning show? Is it streaming? I don't know. My guess is in in the media landscape we live in, there's sort of a combination of things. And then on top of that, she gets featured in the CNN or MSNBC election night coverage, political specials, that sort of thing. But it is not at all analogous to someone getting a contributor gig after leaving an administration. This is very much like the next, in, in, in at least her eyes and in the eyes of the executives courting her, this is like the next chapter for Jen Psaki. Okay, so I have a couple, I have one observation and two questions about this. One, you talk about cable news needing to radically shake up its roster of talent and try new things. You know, as much as I think that Jen is talented, it does feel like just another sort of revolving chair DC thing, you know, like, like it doesn't feel that radical. In other words, even though she would be hosting, it's just like, let's shuffle the deck chairs a little bit. No, yeah, no. it is. I mean, inside, well, right. the, so, inside the club, you know, what what constant. First of all, it goes without saying that as much as these networks want her, there's a chance that she could get there and not be great or that they could sort of not figure out what to do with her and she could fail. I mean, the amount of times we've expected someone to do great in television and then they failed. See, like Megyn Kelly going to NBC like this. That happens, too. In the grand scheme of things, is it a radical change? Absolutely not. But. At a moment where you're sort of like Rachel Maddow's replacement is fighting to keep the ratings above like Chris Cuomo's replacement. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) getting somebody who has achieved some sort of celebrity status, a sort of political celebrity status, and who has worked in the White House is a moment where you could potentially do something big. And I think given that Jen Psaki is smart, She's telegenic. She has experience sort of every day she goes out there and sort of explains the news and debunks falsehoods. You could see this as where an opportunity within the limited scope of what of what cable news executives are capable of. This is like the best option they've seen in a very long time and certainly feels like a lifeline again at a moment where Rachel Maddow is getting ready to leave primetime. CNN just lost its president and is heading into uh, new ownership under discovery. There's all sorts of sort of uncertainty there. Meanwhile, ratings are like plummeting. Everyone's still figuring out streaming. If you can latch on to someone like her as a talent, that is something that could shift, if not change the game, but like could shift the narrative considerably for for whichever network gets her. Okay, so these are my two questions, and they're both CNN-related. One, you mentioned Rebecca Cutler. I believe she's the head of original programming for CNN+. Plus. So would this yes. theoretical job at CNN be for the streaming network or for the traditional network? And then two, 
we've talked a lot on this podcast and you have written specifically about this and all of your really incredible conversation driving coverage of CNN, Jeff Zucker, Alison Gallist, Chris Cuomo. But John Malone uh, has talked about how he wants CNN to get back to basics journalism as opposed to the, you know, hair on fire, liberal opinion commentary that seems to have infected or inflected uh, both probably apply the network's coverage over the last four years. So, you know, bringing Jen Psaki on board, who is a open partisan Democrat, seems like that would be a counterintuitive move as CNN tries to sort of readjust as the most trusted name in news and not, you know, Democratic National Committee on television. So that that's a really good point and question. I think to the just to the first question quickly i think these conversations are early and basically what you do when you go after someone of gensaki's caliber you basically put everything on the table and i also think that for a lot of these networks you know well they have well, well there's a distinction between linear and digital in terms of the pnl and and the strategies and all that that you you bring the talent under the umbrella and then you figure out what to do with them and maybe that includes both you know, a linear show and a streaming show. And increasingly, that is the reality for talent in news, whether that's at CNN or CBS News or whatever it is. The second question is the more important one, and that is for a Democratic press secretary, the jump from the briefing room to MSNBC is very easy and logical. And I think that You've got a network that has embraced its liberal uh, bias, its progressive bias, and is quite comfortable with that. And I think she could settle into that very comfortably. At the same time, what I would say is that she worked for Obama and Biden. She doesn't exactly represent the like far left wing, far progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And she's also, you know, a technocrat. She's like a political or was. I mean, she's like a. She's a card-carrying member of the D.C. political establishment, and I think <laughs> that she could fit, therefore, very nicely into CNN and I think would be welcomed with open arms by CNN audiences. To the question of what you know, what is CNN going to become, what does John Malone want, what does David Zaslav want, yes, I do. I, I think my, my sort of long-held thesis going back to when I joined Puck about them tacking back toward the center, it indeed looks like that's going to play out. Uh, at least towards something where like the primary value proposition is like this hard news thing that we do, less so the opinions of a Don Lemon or Brianna Keeler. Um, that said, this is still a business, and in the business, what matters is just getting the eyeballs. And if Jen Psaki, because of her CV, she's been a guest on The View, she's been profiled in Vogue, she's got a fervent online following, like if they can get someone who's a star who they think they can turn into even more of a star, they can figure out a way around to, to make it fit in with their larger editorial strategy. And for those listening, I mean, you know, who knows what what the Biden administration is thinking as to who might replace Jen if and when this happens. Like I mean, Biden likes and trusts Jen Psaki. Um, so that is obviously important. I mean, the president has to bless who goes out there at the podium every day. Yeah. Um, but her her deputy, Karine Jean-Pierre, would be the first black woman to have that job if she becomes an option if Jen leaves. Uh, Chris Meager, who did press for Mayor Pete and is now 
also a deputy press secretary in the White House is another talented figure over there. So Biden has some options to replace her. But, you know, one thing that also jumps out at me at this is, you know, you talked about Jay Carney going to Amazon. When there was an exodus during the Obama years of people leaving the White House, there were these up and coming tech companies like Facebook and Amazon and Google and Uber. Um, Snapchat is, is another example of and, and these were positions where if you wanted to go make a lot of money uh, and you were leaving politics with a pretty big credential, you could go do that. It doesn't feel like tech is perceived in the same way these days. No, that's true. There's also not a lot of those those jobs uh, because they're just, you know, not as many sort of big you know, IPO ready startups out there. Um, so, you know, this, this feels like a, 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 a ramp where you can leave the white house and make some money, uh, in a real way. Do these jobs pay a lot? Yeah. I mean, they can if absolutely, it depends on how much, how much, you know, how much they invest in you and want to turn you into a star. And, you know, my guess is again, going back to where the cable news industry is at and you know what they need, that I'm, I think they would be willing to, to put a lot of chips down on this investment. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you, Dylan, before you go is I know we've been talking about CNN in this segment. You've obviously been doing a ton of reporting on the Jeff Zucker saga at CNN and him leaving CNN. What What's the latest there? Is are we is this fading or are we going to continue to, to hear little dramatic tidbits emerge here as we figure out what Jeff and Allison Gallus do next and also as we you know, learn more about Chris Cuomo and maybe what he's trying to extract from Warner Media. Unfortunately, because maybe it's a story people are getting tired of. It's it's by no means done. And the reason I say that is this. You've got thousands and thousands of emails and text messages and all this stuff out there. And, you know, last week I wrote a piece that basically said, like, look, to to, to effectively run a cable news industry, to effectively even be a journalist at a television news industry, you almost necessarily need to be in violation of the standards and practices book because the bar for violating standards and practices is so low as to be absurd. <laughs> so I, I I brought that up last week as a way of saying like, look, if Jason Kyler wanted to get rid of Jeff Zucker and Allison Gallus, like he could have just looked at two years ago when Tucker Carlson unearthed the 2016 audio of Jeff Zucker saying, like, I want to give Donald Trump a show on the night of a GOP primary debate. So, you, you know what I mean? Like, it's there. Like, the violations are there. I think the question that is, are the violations in this case in terms of any sort of correspondence with with Chris Cuomo, are they so much more egregious than CNN journalists themselves would, who, who love Jeff Zucker would be able to tolerate. And so at the end of the week last week, when Je- when the New York Times published this piece that said there was an email between Allison Gall or a text message email between Allison Gallist and the governor, and he, he wanted to be talk about certain things during a segment, and she passed it along to the producers and said, you know, and wrote back and said, it's been done. Like that in cable news, I know it doesn't look good from the outside, but that is not if that is the fireable offense, that is not something that CNN, the CNN employees who are really pissed off at Warner Media are going to be okay with. Now, my understanding, based off of the reporting I've done since then, is that there is indeed more here. And the problem is, is that that's not whatever that more is, 
is something that Warner Media doesn't want to give up. It's something that Brian Friedman, Chris Cuomo's lawyer, is not yet ready to give up. And uh, obviously something that Jeff Zucker and Allison Gallus don't want to give up. But is it out? Is is there more out there? Yes. And it, and and if there's not more out there, we still need to learn that there's not more out there. So I, I don't think this story is going to be be sort of the weekly obsession that it has been for the media industry over the last three weeks. But I do think it will rear its head over and over again until until people feel like there's some real sense of closure. I assume you will be breaking every every one of those details as they unfold. I will do my best. Dylan, thank you for dropping a sake bomb on Puck this week. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next week. Thank you. All right, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Eric Johnson of lightningpod.fm, our partner, for his support. And thanks, too, to Liz Goff and Ben Landy for their production help. I'm Peter Hamby, and I will see you next week.